What up to D Palmer, D Levin, BJ Kerwin, D Henderson, Tracy B, and Chuck C. D Vance, Darling Mickey, Bookstore Kim, K Webb, Brett R, Rhonda K, Pitchfork Nick, Jay and Amanda from Best of the Left, Nettie, and Knudsen. C Lawless, Tyler the Vegan, Rebuttal Barry W, Brian C, Reciprocal Hokey, Stephanie H, and Rafe Raff. You know what, you guys? I love you. I love you. I'm not even embarrassed to say it. I just, I, I love you. I'm not embarrassed. Love you. I love you. And a good day to all of you on fuckers, sub fuckers, zero fuckers, unkanuckers, and down under fuckers. And welcome to our new subscribers at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR who've joined us as sustaining supporters of the show, which is truly an honor considering that we don't gate any of our content. These supporters are just like, fuck it. Here's some dough every month so I don't forget. Now do you. We made the decision early on to offer all of our content for free because we believe that it should be free and available to everyone without creating any barriers. It makes funding the show more challenging, but we made a long bet that if you found this shit valuable, then it would warrant support when the spirit moved you. Nothing compulsory, right? You look at your credit card bill, and there's a charge for Hulu, Netflix, maybe satellite radio, a couple of podcasts, a beer subscription box, NPR, internet access, cable bill, blah, blah, blah. It's death by a thousand subscriptions. So we said, fuck it. So if you want to join us over on Substack to get our episode essays, just sign up for free at unftr.substack.com. We also have unfuckers on so many different podcast apps like Spotify, Apple, Google, Podbean, Pocket Cast, and more that we wanted to be as available as we can to everyone. So funding for the show is completely driven by listeners who either donate on the Buy Us Coffee link at unftr.com or by buying our actual, real-life, delicious, organic, and fair trade coffee roasted in partnership with native coffee traders. That way, you don't really have to come out of pocket to support us. You drink coffee? Drink this coffee and support the show and Indigenous Economic Development, one of the critical missions of Unfucking the Republic. Now, last week was appropriately heavy because we talked about the great tragedy of our occupations abroad and what happens when we leave. We got some really strong feedback on the show because obviously you feel the same level of shame that we do in our behavior. The larger point we made was about the budget and why it would just be assumed by both parties that it can and should continue at the same level it had when we were litigating two massive wars in the Middle East. And talking budget, which you know I love, brought me back to what the fuck needs to happen if we're going to restore some sanity into our political process. That's where we left off at the end of the episode. That and a cliffhanger sketch waiting to see where President Harris will invade. Don't know about you, but I can't wait to find out. And 99 fell for my dad joke at the very end of the show about Jerry and Phil. Gerrymander and filibuster. We love spreading democracy. We've covered the planet in our democracy like a hotel bedspread under a blacklight. Please stop it. Yes, sir. We whip out our democracy like Brett Kavanaugh at a frat... I said stop. Most of the time, we leave you with gonorrhea or worse, but it doesn't stop us from cruising the rest stops of the world and pulling... 99 punches, ass. All right, all right, all right. God! Ah! Oh, shit, 99. Keep it up and I'll slap you into David Pakman's feed. 99? What, Max? You don't suppose when you pulled me, you might have torn me in half, do you? <laughs> well, the point I was making before I was so rudely assaulted in my own studio is that while we tout our democratic principles around the world, here at home we have some pretty arcane procedural nonsense responsible for some pretty undemocratic outcomes. One is an original sin by design from our founding fathers, and the other two were developed along the way to protect the interests of racist assholes. 
the Electoral College, filibuster, and gerrymandering are three significant characteristics of our democracy and totally unique to us. Are these examples of procedural fuckery design flaws or integral parts of the whole that maintain the balance of power in the Republic? This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy But it's fun because he curses The whole number of the electors appointed to vote for President of the United States is 538, of which a majority is 270. George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for President of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes. Let's start the show by talking about the concept of representative democracy. The grand idea behind our republic is that the people would have a say in elections. We would have a balance of power that prevented any one branch of government from having too much power and that our representation would be periodic and not subject to the tyranny of monarchical rule. I want to start with our original sin, that of the Electoral College, because there have been five presidents in our history who actually lost the popular vote. John Quincy Adams, Rutherford B. Hayes, Benjamin Harrison, George W. Bush, and Donald fucking Trump. Now, the first two were seriously mired in conflict to a far greater extent than anything we've seen since and were ultimately decided by Congress. So the fix, if you want to call it that, was really in on those elections. In fact, Andrew Jackson, who ostensibly had the election stolen from him, would exact his revenge at the polls and win by a huge margin the next time around. Later, Benjamin Harrison would lose to Grover Cleveland, the sitting president at the time, which led to the only time a sitting president was defeated and then came back to win again. But those were different times and our democratic process matured greatly, in some cases. More recently, the losses of Al Gore and Hillary Clinton stung more because we theoretically had a far more representative system with voting rights extended to all and not just white dudes with land. So in these cases, we truly had a popular vote going one way and our archaic system of the Electoral College going the other. Now, depending upon who winds up on the losing end of the Electoral College, in both modern cases, the Democrats, the arguments for abolishing it are pretty loud and consistent. The first part of the argument is that it's just not fair. It's just not fair, damn it! <laughs> it's not fair because the majority is never supposed to answer to the minority. It's exactly the opposite of what democracy should look like. And the second part is usually that this is not what the founders intended. So let's take a look at the second part first, however, because it illustrates why this is more fraught than one might imagine. Bear with me on this next part, unfuckers, because we need to go back a bit and hear directly from the founders themselves. I see dead people. I'm going to read a couple passages from the Federalist Papers. I've done this before because these papers are really the crib notes to the Republic, the closest thing we have to truly ascertaining the intent of the founders. And the reason I like to quote from them directly is because the final product is often misinterpreted or twisted to fit a particular dogma, done by both sides of the aisle, mind you. So why not just go to the source? I'm quoting from Madison's paper number 39 specifically, as Madison did much of the heavy lifting on the separation of powers. So first, let's talk about Congress. In this section, Madison writes, quote, The Senate derives its appointment indirectly from the people. 
the president is indirectly derived from the choice of the people, according to the example in most of the states. End quote. Now, the name Electoral College didn't come out for many, many years after our founding, but the idea that presidential power is, quote, indirectly derived from the choice of the people, end quote, is the important part. Hold on to this as we go through a longer passage in the 39th paper. The next relation is to the sources from which the ordinary powers of government are to be derived. The House of Representatives will derive its powers from the people of America, and the people will be represented in the same proportion and on the same principle as they are in the legislature of a particular state. So far, the government is national, not federal. The Senate, on the other hand, will derive its powers from the states as political and co-equal societies, and these will be represented on the principle of equality in the Senate, as they now are in the existing Congress. So far, the government is federal, not national. The executive power will be derived from a very compound source. The immediate election of the president is to be made by the states in their political characters. The votes allotted to them are in a compound ratio, which considers them partly as distinct and co-equal societies, partly as unequal members of the same society. The eventual election, again, is to be made by that branch of the legislature, which consists of the national representatives. But in this particular act, they are to be thrown into the form of individual delegations from so many distinct and co-equal bodies politic. From this aspect of the government, it appears to be of mixed character, presenting at least as many federal as national features. End quote. Whew. So we spent a lot of time in the debate over the Electoral College talking about fairness. But you notice the absence of this concept in Madison's words. That's because the founders were trying to assuage the southern states at the time who understood that the North was going to someday win the population battle and that their interest would be diminished as time went on. Of course, there was the major battle over how exactly to count the population since enslaved people made up a large percentage of the southern population at the time. This would rear its head often over the course of our brief little history and is something that we'll touch on later. The words I want to focus on here to settle the idea of fairness is how Madison states the, quote, executive power will be derived from a very compound source, end quote. This was intentional. The argument that what would be known as the Electoral College is somehow against the wishes of the founders doesn't hold if you want to be an originalist and use their exact words and logic. In other words, it was indeed deliberate in order to appease the growing concern of southern states that would be edged out of both the representative house and the executive branch. But inherent in this argument is also the answer. The Senate, as was clearly stated by the founders, was always intended to be the ultimate cooling power in our legislative branch. In concept and in practice, the Senate possessed enough legislative power to cause greater deliberation and compromise in any pertinent legislation that affected the nation and impacted the states. In fact, Madison didn't get the one thing that was most important to him during the Constitutional Convention, which was the ability of the federal government to veto any state legislation, which would have placed far too much power in the hands of the Federalists. So if the framework of a compound source to determine presidential elections was done to appease southern slave states, then I think it's entirely reasonable to argue on the grounds of fairness that this be eliminated in a society that now exists without the institution of slavery. Moreover, the protections that the individual states required still exist within the power of the Senate. Ultimately, you can use the founders' intent behind the words, but not their exact words, to argue that this compound source concept is no longer valid because the very thing they were trying to protect 
no longer exists, and that the protection of states beyond slavery is very much intact due to the existence of the Senate. In terms of what to do with the Electoral College, there are three camps. One is to leave it the fuck alone. That's largely a Republican stance these days because of the population trends and, of course, the outcome of Bush v. Gore and Trump v. Clinton. The other two camps are to either reform the Electoral College or abolish it altogether. Now, both require constitutional amendments, yet something called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact provides another way and would bypass the Electoral College system altogether, an agreement between states to award all of their electors to whomever wins the popular vote nationally. The National Popular Vote Bill would guarantee the presidency to the candidates who received the most popular votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. It has been enacted into law by 15 states and D.C. with 195 electoral votes, but it needs an additional 75 electoral votes to go into effect. So it's interesting to note that over the history of our country, there have been at least 700 proposed amendments to modify or abolish the Electoral College more than any other subject of constitutional reform. Now, we'll return to the Electoral College at the end of the episode to talk through the validity of abolishing or reforming the system. But next, let's look at more procedural fuckery, specifically creepy old Uncle Jerry. In 1812, Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry created a redistricting plan in his state that included a district that looked like a salamander. Gerry made a salamander district, and that's how the term gerrymander was born. Very similar to the term earmark, which comes from the old story of a fella named Mark who cut off his own ear for some government toilet paper. Or the term swing state, which earned the nickname after a drunken night of spouse swapping in Ohio. Holy shit, can you just stay on the fucking script? Most certainly. Well, the official definition of gerrymandering is the intentional manipulation of district boundaries to discriminate against a group of voters on the basis of their political views or race. And the Elbridge Gerry story is true, by the way. The others aren't. I think we've got to end the practice of drawing our congressional districts so that politicians can pick their voters and not the other way around. So every 10 years, state legislatures or independent panels, depending on how the state has determined the process, Take the data from the most recent census and draw new district maps. The more fucked up the shape of the district, the more it has been quote-unquote gerrymandered. The process has been abused by both sides, so don't let anyone tell you it hasn't. Of course, the most blatant and extreme examples of it have typically been done by Republicans. And Republicans have gerrymandered twice as many districts as Democrats. Sorry, it's just true. And guess what? 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 When Republicans redraw districts, it's usually pretty racist. No. What? Stop. No way. You You're don't crazy. Say. That's crazy. Get out talk. of town. Yep, it's true. There have been several examples over the years where districts were drawn to deliberately squeeze out or squeeze in voters based upon race. In fact, in 2010, courts found that maps in four different states were improperly drawn by race and party affiliation and wound up redrawing them to be more accurate and more representative. Dig this. Had they not done so, the House would actually be in Republican control right now. So yeah, it matters. Today, it's getting even crazier because big data is entering the picture, so these maps are getting ever more specific instead of broad and representative. So the court battles have already begun, and because the census data was late due to the pandemic, the pressure is on to get this done. Adding even more pressure to the Democrats is the Supreme Court's 2019 ruling that gerrymandering cannot actually be challenged in federal court. Wow. 
Another example of how presidential elections have consequences and the composition of the Supreme Court really fucking matters. If Democrats are unable to properly reapportion districts to be more representative, then they'll continue to struggle for the next decade in state legislatures and in the House of Representatives. There are a couple of more effective ways to fix this stupid partisan and too often racist process that was never intended to be this broken. One is an effort put forward by a handful of Congress people in the 116th Congress called Ranked Choice Voting. It's possible that many unfuckers have heard of it because it's been gaining traction over the past several years in municipal and lower stakes elections. Even by me in New York City, we just came through our ranked choice voting experiment in the Democratic primary. It was actually a little fucked up at first, but eventually they got it down and it worked the way it was supposed to. And how is it supposed to work, you might ask? Basically, it's math. Whether it's a 1v1 or multiple candidate election, ranked choice voting ensures that every vote counts. Essentially, voters fill out their first, second, third, however many options there are, choices. And once the top candidate crosses a particular threshold, the bottom votes are thrown out and their second choices are awarded to the top and so on. Mm, yeah, no, I don't, I don't get it. Trust me, neither does Max. I put helpful links in show notes. Wow, great. Thanks, guys. If ranked choice were introduced federally as law, it would essentially do away with the ridiculous number of districts we currently have and limit them in every state broadening the area that candidates would be trying to represent. Same total number of Congress people, just fewer districts with more competition. And most importantly, no gerrymandering. A couple of bills like the Fair Representation Act backed by smart motherfucker Ro Khanna and Ranked Choice Voting Act sponsored by Jamie Raskin haven't and won't go anywhere anytime soon because you're talking about completely reshaping our entire democratic process. However, as ranked choice rolls out in districts and municipalities across the country, the more used to it will become over time. But it just won't have an immediate effect for our purposes now. There is a more immediate and realistic way to attack this issue, which we'll cover shortly. And like 99 said, we'll leave some great sources to understand voting reform attempts and the concept of ranked choice voting in show notes. It's fascinating to think what we might look like replacing the winner-take-all gerrymandered process that we live with now. It's actually amazing just how undemocratic it actually is. When we last left our heroes, they had just activated Dick Cheney's magic WND globe and selected the next nation for President Kamala Harris to invade. We join our protagonists in the Situation Room. For the love of Jehovah, what does it say? Tony, do we really have to go through with this? I'm afraid so, ma'am. This magic cannot be undone, or else we'll be subjected to the same fate and attacked by an undetermined foe. Ma'am, we're all aware of the consequences. Just tell us where it is. <sighs> it's... it's Bhutan. Um, forgive me. But am I the only one who has no fucking idea where this is? No, not really. Not really. Can't say if I, I think, hopefully uh, it's uh, Is it Muslim? Hopefully it's Muslim. Is it near Hawaii? Uh I really don't Yeah, I'd never heard of it to be honest. I just No. no. God damn it. Get Pisaki in here. Yes, ma'am, you called? Jesus, that was fast. Man, he's a great producer, ma'am. Pisaki, I need everything you can get me on Bhutan. Hmm, Bhutan, Bhutan. Uh, uh, here it is. Bhutan is a predominantly Buddhist country of less than one million people nestled in the Himalayas with no crime and a constitutional dedication to protecting the environment. 
Instead of measuring the size of their economy in terms of GDP, they measure it by something called gross domestic happiness. While it's still a simple and rather poor nation, it is wholly dedicated to simplicity, to the earth, and peace among all people. I mean, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Whew. Uh, thank you, Pisaki. That'll be all. Ma'am, you're gonna have to summon him. You know that, right? <sighs> you're right. Uh, uh, get Pisaki back in. Yes, ma'am. Jesus, how the fuck do you do? Uh, never mind. Pisaki, I need you to bring up DC from the dungeon securely. Ma'am. Agent Camelese. We meet again so soon. Dr. Cheney, we have a situation. You unwisely wielded the power of my globe, bequeathed to me by the Dulles brothers, spun it and selected the country we shall invade next to further the war machine and ensure U.S. hegemony and bloodlust for decades to come. Only you've selected a country that poses a diplomatic nightmare for your burgeoning administration. Yeah, y yes, that's essentially the recap from the first part that we needed to get in in case nobody listened to the first one. Yes. Quid pro quo, Camelis. Tell me about your father, dear. Was he a coal miner? Does he stink of the lamp? Uh, nope. He's an award-winning economist. That's boring. Never mind, then. Where are we invading? Bhutan, Dr. Cheney. Well, that fucking blows. But it's easy. Bhutan is a Buddhist nation. Who ever heard of praying to a fat god? Unslovenly, offensive, and all the peace they're trying to spread. Anti-American, if you ask me gross domestic happiness. A euphemism for harboring terrorists that want to kill Jesus Christ and take away your guns. They're located between Russia and China, a playground for funny business. You'll tell the world that the Chinese are using Russian hackers to implant chips into Himalayan salt purported to be better for your cholesterol, but secretly it also carries the coronavirus vaccine. Bhutan is the greatest national threat to our way of life since communism, Islam, and Rachel Maddow. Now all you need to do is find a willing stooge in Congress, the stupidest person in office, and slip them this intelligence. Let them stoke the flames of discord and rile up the base of the Republican Party. Before you know it, you'll have a mandate, and you'll be officially rewarded with the presidency. But who can I find to do this dirty work? Who would be this stupid? Look inside the house for the answer. Oh, and Camelise, love your suit. Two weeks later. The chair recognizes the congressman from Florida. Uh, <laughs> dude, uh, Bhutan sucks. <laughs> Bhutan. <laughs> Sounds like Poontang. <laughs> Let's bomb him. Ah, uh, the filibuster. Enlightenment philosophers from John Locke to James Madison believed in majority rule, though, as we pointed out in the Electoral College section, to the extent that it was among a particular class of people. But the idea that the majority of this class of people, at least, the elected officials of our main governing body, could be overpowered by the minority was 100% anathema to our founding principles. From a practical and philosophical standpoint, perhaps no other procedural fuckery would stink as badly to the founders as the filibuster. You think I'm licked? You all think I'm licked? Well, I'm not licked. And I'm gonna stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. 
Recall from a prior episode the anecdote that Southern racists created the filibuster to prevent the North from changing laws regarding slavery and invoked Madison's own words. Except that Madison was still alive and was all like, that's not what the fuck I said. Again, in terms of the framer's mindset, Madison is still the guy who had the most influence over procedural issues. And as much as he was forced to accept the great compromise to create two legislative bodies, he eventually came around to the idea as being positive because the Senate truly did perform a cooling function to hotbed legislative items and populist agendas. What he never advocated for or supported was the idea of endless debate, which is what most of us still think of when we hear the term filibuster. The councilwoman wishes to speak on this issue. Will the councilwoman yield her time so we can vote on this sucker? No, I will not yield, nor will I yield for the rest of the evening. A filibuster? Are you duking on my chest right now? The filibuster was a procedural move perfected by the likes of John Calhoun, perhaps one of the most influential racist members of Congress who ever lived, and that's saying a lot. This original loophole came about with the elimination of something called the, quote, previous question, end quote, rule, which allowed the Senate supervisors to essentially tell the minority or the opposition to a motion to wrap it up and shut the fuck up. The idea to get rid of this came from none other than Aaron Burr, who was really just trying to clean up the Senate rulebook. That's how far back this shit goes. Extended, annoying debate to wait out the majority beyond reasonable thresholds of time was more powerful than one might imagine and almost every instance was used to defend against the smallest or biggest attempts to chip away at the institution of slavery. It was a bizarre way for the minority of southern states to exercise their will against the majority of northern states, and that's the way it continued to play out from Calhoun's day through today. Though today, senators don't actually have to take to the floor at all. They don't have to call emergency sessions or make a quorum secretly or any other procedural attempts to forestall the legislation. Now they just have to send a fucking email. The filibuster story involves some really stupid Senate rules and norms made up by mostly old white dudes trying to protect the sanctity of the hallowed institution of slavery. LBJ, the master of the Senate, as Bob Caro dubbed him for the ages, knew better than anyone how to push the buttons and pull the levers of the Senate to bend people and process to his will. Now before him, though, there was a guy named Richard Russell who believed, quote, any Southern white man worth a pinch of salt would give his all to maintain his white supremacy, end quote. Richard Russell used the filibuster against civil rights more than anyone else before him. See, in the right hands or the wrong hands, the filibuster was a weapon of mass obstruction. You kill yourself, don't you? Yes, I do. In our time, it's Mitch Turtlefuck McConnell who embodies obstruction through the use of the filibuster while in the minority and holding back bills from the floor when leading the majority. In Kill Switch, Adam Gentleson maps out Turtlefuck's journey from arguing for campaign finance reform and getting money out of politics in the 70s to selling his soul to Roger Ailes and eventually leveraging the filibuster to block any attempts at campaign finance reform. Just fucking stunning. One of the key points that McConnell himself was rather vocal about was what's good for the goose is good for the gander. McConnell's an asshole, yes, but there was a time he could be reasoned with, the kind of time that Joe Biden likes to recall, though I would argue that this is more myth than reality. Anyway, McConnell wasn't alone. He didn't invent the filibuster or obstruction. Robert Byrd, Harry Reid on the Dem side, and of course the countless racist Southern fuck nostrils that preceded him had all guarded the filibuster once in power. 
McConnell had a front row seat for years learning how to weaponize the filibuster and any other obstruction tactics, so when the time came for him to take a back seat during the Obama years, he was determined to become the ultimate backseat driver. Because routinely filibustering nominations was itself a modern invention pioneered by Senate Democrats in the 2000s. From blocking nearly every domestic agenda item under Barack Obama right through to blocking Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia, to passing Trump's massive tax cut to the rich, then blocking nearly everything else even Professor Orange Von Fucknugget tried to do, Mitch McConnell literally ran the country from 2011 to 2020. Whether we let him continue to dictate policy and craft the national agenda relies squarely on whether or not the Democrats have the intestinal fortitude to do away with the filibuster once and for all. So there's an answer on the table right now. At the beginning of the year, I talked about this and acknowledged that it had quite the road ahead, but that it's possible. H.R. 1, Senate 1, for the People Act, accomplishes a lot. The filibuster, that's a procedural thing, doesn't need to be legislated. It's literally the Senate changing its own fucking rules of engagement. But it's the key to passing the For the People Act and any other important legislation that ever faces the nation. So we know that gerrymandering, the filibuster, and the Electoral College, three of the biggest structural and procedural quirks and traps of our democracy, have racist roots. Put them together, and it makes sense why it took so fucking long to even abolish slavery in this country. Oh, and just like our Economics of Racism episode illustrated, there's a pretty strong case for including these really important and fundamental narratives into our education system. If only we had some sort of critical approach to race or a, a theory that tied it together. Like a critical theory of race? Or race, a critical theory. Yeah, something like that, guys. I, I just can't put my finger on what it would be. Anywho, getting rid of the filibuster requires the participation of one dude primarily, and that's Joe Manchin. And even if he had an epiphany, there's no guarantee that he'd be on board with the For the People Act. But let's pretend he was an actual Democrat with a conscience who was more concerned about the future of our democracy than trying to put coal miners back into mines and getting reelected. If he was concerned with democracy and saw fit to get rid of the filibuster to allow the majority to rule, then we would have a real shot at putting Humpty Dumpty back together here because the For the People Act not only establishes independent commissions to draw districts, it overhauls campaign financing, expands voter access and registration, and establishes clear ethics standards for sitting elected officials. Unfortunately, Joe Manchin, and now Kirsten Sinema, stand in the way of this happening. And when asked why he would vote against the For the People Act, Manchin said that he considered the bill this bill to expand voter registration, make redistricting independent, and restrict things like dark money in our elections, to be partisan, and that he's confident he can work with Mitch McConnell. So many, many episodes ago, I mentioned how I wasn't necessarily on board with removing the Electoral College. It's time to clarify this. Nothing in Washington happens in a vacuum or quickly. And very few pieces of monumental legislation ever wind up passing since the likes of Gingrich took over. And even then, they're stuffed with unsavory compromises that wind up watering down the original bill. So I felt for a long time that it was folly to try and simply eliminate the Electoral College. More importantly, those of us in blue coastal states like California and New York have a tendency to forget 
that there is a large swath of land in between us. So here's the upside of the Electoral College. It really does force politicians to focus on the whole of the nation and not just where most of the votes are in cities and urban areas and the coastal areas. And the swing states that we know of today weren't always the swing states. And with the new census numbers coming out and people on the move since COVID, there's a chance that this too will change over time. So what I like about it is that true to its intent, the Electoral College ensures representation no matter how fucking small. And that's a very democratic thing to do. What I hate about it is the same fucking thing. That some backwards turds in some place that's not New York have the ability to sway an election. That was rude, right? Well, fuck it. I'm a New Yorker. I don't give a shit. So here's where I land. And I wanted to go through all the motions on today's show to unfuck these procedural quirks. The Senate, as James Madison posited, will derive its powers from the states as political and co-equal societies. And given that so much power is in the hands of this body, the states will forever have a say. And yet the idea that a minority of this body or anybody has the ability to outmaneuver the majority is clearly undemocratic and was never intended to be how the system works. So our Tyson principle, the part where we as unfuckers have a role to play in unfucking the Republic, remains the same as last week's episode. If you look closely at who in the Republic is defending the rights of the majority, ensuring full participation in the democratic process, ending the racist procedural tactic of the filibuster, and calling for an end to gerrymandering, it's coming from one end of the political left, the progressive left. Republicans are holding to the filibuster, gerrymandering, and the resulting corruption of the Electoral College because their numbers are dwindling. Establishment Democrats are balking as well because they're able to conveniently lay the inconvenience of an intractable Congress at the feet of the Republicans, which gives them an easy foil. They've given in to the concept of the lesser evil in all political matters, driving a clear path down the middle in order to preserve their jobs and the ability to attract corporate dollars. There's no other explanation for the behavior of centrist Dems in the face of clear miscarriages of justice and attempts by the Republicans to sideline so many people in the democratic process. They're no longer looking to win, just hold the line indefinitely. So if we want a democracy that works for the majority of people on the most pressing issues of our time, the answers are right there. End the filibuster and pass the For the People Act. Forget the petitions, forget hashtag activism, pick up the phone and bug the shit out of your local Senate office and congressional office to do these two things. All of your other motivations, climate change, campaign finance reform, reducing the military budget, ending mass incarceration, ensuring that your vote counts, universal health care, child welfare protections, food security, all become possible if we do the boring stuff first and fix the procedural fuckery in our system. It ain't sexy, but it works. Hmm. That should be your motto. Yeah, works for me. And the filibuster. Make every vote count. And fuck Mitch McConnell. Here endeth the lesson. The show notes Calling out listeners one by one Show notes Bloopers and thank yous, it's so much fun So here in show notes, just hanging with 99 and uh, we got a lot of shit going on, I got to say. You know, as this thing grows, we got a lot of things, uh, a lot of places to look at and a lot of things going on. So we'll start with the uh, standard stuff. I got to tell you, 
Coffee donations this week were off the fucking charts. Thank you so much for supporting the show with these. Bookstore Kim was back at it again with five coffees. Chuck C also gave us five coffees. Said, you fuckers are amazing. August M took out a membership. Now, what the fuck is this membership thing all about, 99? It's like a recurring coffee. So every month they'll buy us X amount of coffees that they select. And that's just it. They just and just the money just keeps coming to us because they they love us. Yeah, I love that. Thank you, August. Thank you, August. Reciprocal Hokey sent in five coffees and said, "UNFTR has rocketed past Pod Save America as my favorite podcast." That's high praise, ninety nine. Tracy B sent in five coffees. Wendy B also took out a membership and said, "Wow, how do you do it, Wendy B? It's just magic. It's magic." A whole bunch of Manny and a ton of 99. And that that's what's going on, which actually was pretty obnoxious because it made it seem like I'm the magic part of the show. Derek R. was back again and said, Whew, where to begin? He sent us another five coffees. Derek is like a serial supporter of the show, just the fucking coolest guy. So we're super, super appreciative of his continued support. And what do you what do you want to say with this one? Gah? I think it's Ga. Ga. Maybe it's Gaga. Ooh, Gaga. Oh, you think Lady Gaga listens to the show? She might. That'd She's be a weird. worldly a worldly person. Well, Ga or Lady Gaga or just GA said un it's the state of Georgia. Oh, it could just be Georgia. All of Georgia sent us 25 bucks. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Unfucking believably good podcast. Wow. And said, thanks very much. How about doing a show on Australia without a doubt the dead shit nation of the world and number one R slicker? <laughs> it's not the state of Georgia. It's somebody from down under who's super Or someone off. who hates Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah. It could just be a Georgian who fucking, <laughs> you know, I don't know, has, has a thing against Mel Gibson. Who doesn't? Uh, Charles F. sent us a coffee and said, my life is now solely about UNFTR. When I'm not listening to this brilliant and insightful podcast, I'm merely waiting, pacing the floor, you might say, for the next podcast to drop. A lot of activity over on the Facebooks. Charles F. said, loves the show, would like to unfuck the morning with Espresso, but has trouble justifying the $13 shipping fee. You know, we covered this, Charles, in another episode where we were talking about the shipping costs and the fact that we, we don't cover free shipping because we kept the coffee at the most reasonable price that we possibly could. And then we built in a discount for anybody that orders three or more, which essentially covers most of the shipping costs if you do it that way. The alternative there to make sure that there's still, you know, margin in there to send to uh, native coffee traders and to support the show would be to raise the price of the coffee. And we just we're just not willing to do that yet because we feel like the price is just right. So, you know, we haven't found the best answer in the world for it. But remember, you don't have to order anything, but man, we just love that you love us and you can keep listening. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll we'll find the right balance. Nathan E. said, great episode. The military industrial complex is the worst. CJF. What's up, CJ? Said, Reagan never gets enough blame. I agree. Never gets dug up and pissed on often enough. Okay. Nor reburied deep enough. We must do better and send in the classiest fuck Milton Friedman by spelling it Fouquet. Milton Friedman. Kate D. said, unfortunately, the Australian government's response has been equally pathetic. So Kate D. responding to the Afghanistan episode. You know, we have a lot of down under fuckers on this show. Just wow. We love that you're so engaged. We will absolutely do an Australian show. We get a lot of calls for it. We couldn't be really more impressed or soul satisfied that you're tuning into us. So thanks, down under. Appreciate you all. Christian G said, fuck yes. The Afghanistan episode gave me goosebumps and I want to contribute to the progressive caucus, but I live in Arkansas, obviously a deep red state. Okay, well, that's true too. Uh, I want to know what I can do and I feel trapped. So 
uh, you know, maybe Arkansas isn't on the radar like right away. But then again, it did produce a president on the Democratic side. So there's got to be a movement afoot there. There's got to be some things there. I know that Matt Besser from Improv for Humans is from Arkansas, and he actually does a lot of work trying to get the state to be more Democratic. So maybe check him out. Oh, Matt Besser. I love that. Link in the show notes, maybe? Can you drop something to him? for sure. Okay. On the Twitters, Cycle Horse said, great episode as always. Palushdak said, best analysis out there. Love these guys. And Tripod McKee's back. What's up, Tripod? Said, while starting your most recent episode, I felt a strange tightness in my chest, a wave of emotions I had trouble identifying, and a moistness of eyes that made driving a bit more hazardous. Tripod McGee, that's what we were kind of shooting for, and not because we're trying to stoke that emotion, but just because that's authentically how we were feeling when we put it together. Just sadness. So thank you for recognizing it and calling it out. Uh, Big Papa UK 312, y'all just keep bringing the hits. Yeah. Only in America does losing a war after 20 years of wasting military, terrorists, and civilian lives and untold trillions of dollars still make some people feel like winners. That's the military-industrial complex for you. Yeah, dig it. Uh, Cat White Day said, I love at UNFTR pod. You do an amazing job. Hey, thanks, Cat White Day. Uh, Instagram. Mr. Keanel. Mr. Keanel. I'm probably fucking that up, like my <laughs> license plate syndrome. Mr. Keanel would like us to unfuck America's policy towards Iran and its effect on ordinary Iranian people. I'm old enough to remember how these policies pushed Iranian regime to radicalism. Boy, I would love to actually do that. A lot to unpack there. It's always weird to go back and look at footage and photographs before we started uh, fucking everything up in Iran, how culturally forward the country was. Obviously, it's it's like the birthplace of science. I mean, there's so much shit that was going on in Iran before we really started to fuck things up. Uh, Too Bad Tools said, hate, hate, hate what we as a country do to people who helped our people during the last 20 years. It's Vietnam and Iraq all over again, and no wonder why people around the world hate our government. Yeah, I, I feel that Too Bad Tool. A few emails. I'm going to read a little bit of this one. Not the entire thing. It was a really long, thoughtful email from Gabriel B. I appreciated the episode on the fallout of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and my heart breaks with every story I read about the conditions and the cost for everyone who opposed the Taliban or women. I'm 22 years old. I can't remember a time before our military was in Afghanistan. Amazing. You know, you forget about that, right? About, I mean, so many people. Well, you 99. I mean, we've been embroiled in these Middle Eastern conflicts for most of your conscious life. Mind blown. Robert McDee, Dear Max Manny in 99, that episode on Afghanistan perpetual war was so fucking depressing I need to spend a day in a room with golden retriever puppies just to function. In Ireland, a 99 is an ice cream cone. Mr. Whippy style with a chocolate flake in it. We fucking love 99s in Ireland. Well, we love 99 here in the States. Barbie said, I dig the righteous indignation and am appropriately fired up. Tyler Rems was listening to the Afghanistan episode and in the show notes mentioned that we have a veganism episode in the works and almost jumped out of his seat. Yes, Tyler M. Brian R., just listened to the episode in Afghanistan, have actively avoided listening to news about our withdrawal until now because I am a current soldier who has served for 13 years and had been deployed to Afghanistan for OEF 12, 13, and 14. Had witnessed friends lose their lives and have also seen the collateral damage of the people of Afghanistan. It's a tragedy of war that we forget to talk about. Long story short, I struggle to even think about my time there because it's pretty painful and I won't pretend to rationalize our reasons for going in the first place. I just wanted you to know I appreciate your analysis on this subject. I'll recommend it to other soldiers who are also struggling to put this into context themselves as a way to help process how we feel about this sad yet predictable ending to our occupation. That pretty much set up my entire week, Brian R. So thank you for saying that. We really appreciate that. The Silent Aeronaut 
said the Afghanistan episode was depressing but needed to be said. And Tasha T said in your episode, when we leave, I was disappointed about the unfortunately common framing of Haiti as a poor and useless nation. Yeah, Tasha, let's unpack that a little bit. So not a useless nation. And that's actually the larger point that I think I was trying to make there. Uh, If it landed incorrectly, I apologize for that. The intent there was to say that in terms of our policy and how we treat it, instead of giving, I don't know, an appropriate level of funding to cover up for all the misdeeds that we did and the number of times that we overthrew dictatorships there and then put in our own dictatorships and then extracted the resources from that country and basically kept our foreign policy thumb on every single moving part of the nation. That's what I was trying to get out there is that we we do this. We actively participated in fucking over the infrastructure the political and the physical infrastructure of that country and just treat it like it doesn't fucking matter. And that's where I feel like Afghanistan will go as well. And then after we did all these terrible things, we simply ignore it when there's a humanitarian crisis or, you know, somebody's looking to reach out to us for assistance. So yeah, I'm saying that as that's how we treat them, not like that's how it is. 99 is pulling up a response that we got from native coffee traders, a question that Debbie D posed us regarding the, uh, is the coffee shade-grown and bird-friendly? It says that, so mostly all green beans are shade-grown due to the rainforest habitat in which they are grown. And definitely the native coffee beans are because they offer premium beans. The coffee is also bird-friendly, so because the green beans are all organic, the farmers grow the beans surrounded by fruit plants and trees, such as bananas. This method provides a healthy environment for all types of birds. Well, there you go. So, Debbie D., I hope that answers your question. A couple of reviews before we check out here. Gabby4342 said, smart and funny. Max has a great voice. <laughs> Let's read that one again. Smart and funny. Max has a great voice. They cut the heavy stuff with some light, funny clips. And it's fun because he curses all through the podcast. Her new fave. Thanks, Gabby. And Bob K. also left us a review. Thanks for doing that, Bob K. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced and engineered by Manny Faces Media. Harold Clark, Potomac Greeting Card Company. The show is produced by the great and fearless 99. You want to say something fucked up, too? Something fucked up? Well, you know, we don't hear it till after. You know, we say Manny Faces Media, and he always punches him as something fucked up that we can't control. Yeah. So I'm giving you this opportunity to say something fucked up. Fuck Manny Faces. Oh, ho, ho! You sure? He gets the last edit. (laughs) You're right. I don't want him to put fart noises under me. (laughs) I love Manny Faces. There you go. All original music, including our theme song, is produced by Tom McGovern. The show is hosted by Thornton Mellon and distributed by Kickbacks and Bribes. You can support on Fucking the Republic by going to... Buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Or going to UNFTR.com and clicking on the Buy Us Coffee link. Or just by purchasing our actual real-life organic and fair trade and shade-grown bird-fucking-friendly coffee in partnership with Native Coffee Traders. Also by visiting UNFTR.com. Sign up for our essays on Substack for free, always free, at UNFTR.substack.com and buy our recommended books at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod. 
And final word from 99 regarding yeah. our website. Oh, sorry, do that again. And final word from 99 regarding our website. Yeah, so Max alluded to it last week, but we've made some changes on the website. Um, I know some of you had asked about the different clips we use and what they're from. So we now have a dedicated page to every episode. So if you go to unftr.com episodes, you'll see a whole list of them. If you click into it, you'll see the resources we used, any books, any podcasts, and the clips are time-stamped and also linked out to YouTube. So you can really do a deep dive on all the resources. Spoiler alert, I think every episode contains a Godfather clip of some sort. <laughs> so many of them. Whatever. And a lot of, um, I almost said Matt Wahlberg. That's Matt Damon and Mark Wahlberg if they had a baby. Oh, okay. There, you must have had a day where you're really into Mark Wahlberg because there was like from three different movies. Three different movies? Yeah. Because right, he got all the good lines in The Departed. Yeah. You also love Viggo Mortensen. I don't know if you knew. I love. Oh, he's the coolest person alive. There you go. I said it. I don't care. I thought I was the coolest person alive. No, Vigo's actually a, just slight, I mean, just a little bit cooler. I'm going to start crying. Don't start crying. You know. I love you more. Okay. Okay. I'll take that. See you next week. The filibuster was a pre- <laughs> Okay. God damn it. Get Pisaki in here. Yes, ma'am, you called? Jesus, that was fast. Manny's a great producer, ma'am. Breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> Sorry. I was, I was a little, I was a little inebriated when I wrote this. The chair recognizes the congressman from Florida. Uh, <laughs> I love him so much. To the three. To the nine. What up? Yeah? We good? Are we recording? Fucking do this, ninety nine. Fuck many faces. Fuck fuck many faces. Fuck many faces. Oh ho ho. Fuck many faces. Fuck fuck many faces. Fuck many faces. You sure he get the last edit? I love many faces. I love many faces. I love many faces. There you go. Fucking do this. Right, I don't want him to put fart noises under me. (laughs) What up, unfuckers? It's your girl, ninety nine. Please stop it. I said stop. Fuck 99. Fuck fuck 99. Fuck 99. Oh ho ho. Fuck 99. Fuck fuck 99. I love many faces. He gets the last edit. <laughs>